Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 22nd, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We are beginning this program probably about 35 minutes later than normal because of some technical difficulties I had with my JavaScript radio players, which was really strange. I'll do my best to resolve that problem this weekend and figure out why it happened in the first place, which there's no logical answer. It's just that always something goes wrong. It's inevitable. Hopefully this evening my computer won't reboot in the middle of the program like it did last week. This evening we are going to present From Yahshua to Jesus, the evolution of a name. Whether we think that's for good or for bad, it happened. We use the name Yahshua in spite of it. In the early years of my Christian identity studies, I became acquainted with a plethora of crazy ideas, and I actually did evaluate them all as best as I could. Some of these came from British Israel writers, and others from more recent Americans such as Rand, Swift, or Compare, and even more recent writers who are still alive today. So with an open mind, and with Scripture as my guide, Along with various lexicons and many books of classical history and ancient inscriptions, and even many of these so-called apocryphal or pseudepigraphal books, as I studied, I had considered just about everything that an identity Christian could hear. And there are some really harebrained theories passing themselves off as Christian identity. That's what happens when you don't have a catechism. It's a two-edged sword. It's good in a lot of ways because we can learn and progress. And it's bad in a lot of ways because so many clowns with a soapbox want to introduce some new heresy in order to make themselves the prophets of some absolutely crazy idea. So among these were the Ephraim Skepter heresy and the noon-to-noon calendar day heresy, the no-devil heresy, and all of these Clifton had written essays about before I ever had a chance, and I should thank him for that. He saved me a lot of trouble because he was also dealing with those heresies for a long time. Both Clifton and my friend Ralph Daigle would send me all sorts of Christian identity-related materials. And some of it I read for entertainment purposes, while other things I took more seriously. If I could ever unpack the three remaining crates of notes and correspondence which I had accumulated throughout those years... Perhaps I will address some of the things which have merit, or at least those which seem to need further attention, because the things they proposed are still in circulation.
Throughout those years, in my studies, I naturally came to many conclusions which I did not have immediately, and which had long been debated in Christian identity circles. Foremost among the foremost among these were the debates concerning two seed line, the origin of non-Adamic races, the identity of certain of the trees of Eden, and other important topics. Some of the conclusions which I've arrived at over the years actually took years for me to understand, and then even more years to formulate effective arguments based on the supporting evidence. One of the wild ideas I was often confronted with was the claim that the name Jesus came from that of the pagan deity Zeus, and that concept is still promoted in certain Christian identity circles today. In fact, I am certain that James Wickstrom perpetuated it throughout the entire time of his ministry, in spite of the fact that he ultimately should have known better. So about a year after Clifton had put together his paper, which is it, Lord or Yahweh, I sent him this essay, Yahshua to Jesus, Evolution of a Name, which, according to his archives, he had first prepared for publication in June of 2005. Ever since, we had both thought that the two papers were complementary of one another. However, I think that my later paper had, in my later paper, I had concentrated too much on the technical aspects of the languages involved in the development of the word Jesus. So I left out at least one other important aspect of the name of our Savior, which Clifton had often mentioned later, and I will also discuss that here this evening, along with some other improvements and additions to my original paper. As a digression, in May of 2005, I had finished the first draft of my translations of Luke and Acts, and was about to begin a review of that for a final draft, which I completed in late July. So it's evident to me that I did this short little paper as a sort of break in between those two endeavors. In any event, in the format in which Clifton had published these papers, because they were pamphlets, they were limited to about 3,000 words at most, and even then the print would be too small. Therefore, it was difficult to offer a full study of many subjects with such a relatively short essay. That's why Clifton had parts 8, 10, 12 of a lot of his short essays. So making this presentation... I may depart from my usual method of preserving the original and offering my own comments and criticisms. Instead, I will rewrite what sentences I think need rewriting, I will expand on certain explanations that I think need expanding, and I will also expand on many of the shortcuts that were originally taken to squeeze the text into a single pamphlet. So, in effect, this shall actually be somewhat 
of an update to my 2005 essay. <clears throat> Yahshua to Jesus, Evolution of a Name. The purpose of this discussion is to show how the name Jesus came into existence. I am certainly not advocating that one should call upon the name of Yahshua Christ, the Redeemer of Israel, using the name Jesus. However, there are serious misconceptions concerning the origin of this name, which I am compelled to address. And let me say one other thing. When mainstream Judeo-Christians pray to Jesus, because we believe that his real name is Yahshua, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that their prayers are not answered. We have an omnipotent God, an all-knowing God. So when a mainstream Christian prays to Jesus, Yahweh hears him without a doubt, and judges him by what's in his heart, and not necessarily by the facts or data that he has in his mind. <clears throat> I remember one explanation where the claim was made that the name Jesus, and this is crazy, had come from Hail Zeus, which was eventually corrupted into Hey, Zeus, which then resulted in the modern Spanish pronunciation of the name, Jesus. <clears throat> that might be silly, or to some even funny, but it is also childish and patently ridiculous. I've seen grown men come out with this bullshit, and it's just bad. First, even in the New Testament, the customary Greek word for hell or hey is kahire or kaira. It can be pronounced either kahira or kaira. And in Latin, it is ave, like in the hymn Ave Maria, which is translated into English as Hail Mary. Christian identity is truth. But when we espouse these essentially child ideas, then we lose all credibility even where we speak the truth. In order to simplify the presentation here, it shall be taken for granted that the proper English representations of the names of our God are Yahweh and Yahshua, as they are transliterated from the Hebrew. I am aware of the Masoretic spellings found in Strong's Hebrew lexicon, Yehoshua, and other variations, yet I would dispute them. The Yeho names, the names beginning in J-E-H-O, from the Old Testament became Yo names, I-O, in the Septuagint translation. And such is not the case for this name. Now, I had referred to Clifton's paper, which I presented here last week, which is at Lord or Yahweh, if my reader wanted more information on this topic. Furthermore, 
I am not going to make lengthy quotes from lexicons here, but shall be concise or even only paraphrase them where it is needed in my illustrations. Yet, of course, I shall cite my sources. As I had explained where I recently presented Clifton's first paper, one problem that the ancient writers had when transliterating Hebrew names into Greek was the lack of the letter H, or A-I-T-C-H, which is how we pronounce it in English, the lack of the letter H in ancient Greek. The Greeks used the symbol to represent the vowel eta, but they did not have the letter to represent the sound which is present in Hebrew, Latin, and English. When a word began with a vowel, or contain the letter R. They did have a mark which represented the sound, but except for the letter R, they never employed it with other letters in a word, or I should say within a word, to place the H sound in the middle of the word. So some names were written with the letter key instead which is a guttural CH in English, and ACAS is an example. But in many other names, the letter H was simply dropped. As I had also explained presenting Clifton's paper, Josephus, who was a priest and a Levite, had informed us in his Antiquities that the sacred name was pronounced with four vowels, by which he he meant for Greek vowels, writing in Greek. And from other Christian, other and Christian writers, other writers who were also Christians, who were nearly as early as Josephus, we may determine that those four vowels which he had in mind were most likely I-A-U-E, iota, Alpha, Upsilon, and Epsilon, which in English we may naturally pronounce as Yahweh. Now, that methodology at arriving at the pronunciation of the name of our God may not be perfect, but it is certainly historical, based on historical evidence and probably the best that we can do upon introducing the name into our modern English vernacular. Furthermore, as I also stated here, and where I will now elaborate, Yahoo names, or Jeho names from the Old Testament, became Yo names, in the Septuagint translation, in other words, the J-E-H-O of the King James English became simply I-O in the Greek of the Septuagint. And such is not the case with this name. Yo names in the Septuagint translation are Jehoram. And these are just examples. There are a lot more. Jehoram, where Jehoram of the King James Version is simply Yoram, 
I-O-R-A-M, in the Septuagint. Jehoiakim is Joachim in the Septuagint. And Jehoshaphat is Yosaphat in the Septuagint. But Joshua becomes Jesus in the Septuagint, where the O or Omega is changed to an A, to an Ada, and evidently may have followed some now lost convention of ancient Hebrew. So all these other Jeho names, these names beginning with the first syllable of the name of Yahweh, all became I-O in the Septuagint, except Joshua, which became basically I-A, or as it's usually transliterated, I-E. And we'll discuss the Ada letter shortly. Many in Israel identity purport that the corruption of Yahshua into Jesus was a part of some overt conspiracy by a wicked church to somehow replace Yahweh with the Greek god Zeus. These people then claim, in support of this contention, that Jesus and Zeus are actually sound-alike words. Yet they don't sound alike at all. There is no evidence that in ancient times, the first S in Jesus was ever pronounced like a Z. Actually, the Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans all had a letter Z and could have easily used it if they so desired. Also, the Roman supreme god was not called Zeus, but Jupiter, or also Jove. So for them, any supposed connection is less likely. Romans always preferred their own names for the gods over the Greek names, Mars for Ares, Diana for Artemis, Mercury instead of Hermes, Juno instead of Hera, and on and on and on. And they even have been offended if they were compelled to use any form of the name of Zeus. The Romans used a similar word, deus, for god, a generic word for a god, but deus could be used as a title to address or describe any so-called god. Here I hope to demonstrate just how the name Jesus truly came into being. Early on in my studies, I sought information on how ancient Greek was pronounced. Eventually, I met a man who claimed to have studied Greek in college. His name was Michael Stewart, and by his appearance, he was definitely Scottish, and perhaps partly British. He made a chart for me, and on the chart, several of the vowels, and at least a couple of the diphthongs, a diphthong is two vowels together that form one sound, like in English, like O-U. Several of the vowels and at least a couple of the diphthongs were all pronounced like the letter E, or in Greek, the letter epsilon. This I rejected, and Michael found a Greek prisoner, one who looked like a Turk to me, who confirmed his chart, 
So I told him that he was really speaking Turkish and that I could not accept it at all, and I offended them both. Ultimately, I chose to follow the pronunciation guide for ancient Greek found in the opening pages of Strong's Greek-English lexicon. And since then, I have found resources which uphold that guide, at least for the most part. However, even some academics dispute aspects of how ancient Greek was pronounced, and we can never be entirely certain. But for my purposes in all of my pronunciations, I have attempted to follow Strong's guide, and have maintained that as best as I can until this day. But neither can we be entirely certain that the apostles themselves had followed the classical Greek pronunciations, since scholars acknowledge that there were deviances from classical Greek in the Hellenistic period, and Koine Greek was not free of differences in dialects in various regions. There is even some evidence that there was a peculiar Eastern, or even Judean, dialect of Koine Greek. The Greek name from which Jesus, or I'm sorry, the Greek name from which Jesus is derived is Jesus. Under the entry for Jesus, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, edited by Gerhard Friedrich, explains that after the return from Babylon, the early Hebrew name Yahshua, Y-A-H-S-H-U-A, was shortened to Yahshua, Y-A-S-H-U-A. And we will discuss the consequences of that shortening later this evening. This is the same as Joshua of the Old Testament. In the Greek Septuagint, a book which was translated from Hebrew into Greek long before the organized Roman church could have made any conspiracy, wherever the name Joshua appears, we find some form of the Hebrew equivalent, Jesus. Of the final S here, which in Greek is written differently, more like our S when it appears at the end of a letter. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament states, the Septuagint retained the later form, Yahshua, without the first H, or Yeshua, and made it declinable by adding a nominative S, or sigma, they not only made it declinable by adding the letter S to the end, but also by modifying the final vowels to comply with the Greek convention. I will explain what a declinable word is in a few moments. The form of the Hebrew form of Joshua ended in the letter ayin, which in modern Hebrew is considered a consonant representing a rough breathing sound. Although that is certainly disputable relating to ancient Hebrew. 
The Phoenician form of the same letter was the origin of the Latin and Greek letter O, which is a vowel. Now, responding to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. First, and this is the explanation of declensions I just promised. First, the nominative S allows one writing in Greek to decline the noun Jesus, meaning that in that manner, the word may be represented in the various Greek cases, which are, for examples, Jesus in the nominative case, which is typically the subject of a verb. And that would be an example of that would be Jesus calls. Jesus calls you. Jesus is the subject of the verb, and you are the object of the verb. Yesun, ending with an N instead of an S, in the accusative case, denoting the object of a verb. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Jesus is the object of the verb to call, so it's written in the accusative case. Yesu in the genitive case, which typically denotes source or possession, something being of or from Jesus. And Yesoi, or again Yesu, in the dative case, which for a person denotes accompaniment or location, going with or going to Jesus. Declensions are an important part of Greek grammar, which are not fully utilized in English. In other words, with a declension, if we had a sentence like, Bill throws the ball, we could mix the words up, but we could never come out with a translation that says, the ball throws Bill. Because Bill would be the subject, it would be in a nominative case, and because ball would be the object, it would be in the accusative case, the words could be in any order, and we couldn't be confused. So in that matter, I think it's a lot far superior to English. The apostrophe S in English is an example of a declension, somewhat representing the genitive case in our language. When we see that apostrophe S, we know that it, it denotes possession. But for the most part, in English, we rely on word order and the use of prepositions. So, adding the S greatly assists the Greek writer. An example of an indeclinable noun in Greek is David. David can't be declined. In every case, it appears the same way, D-A-V-I-D, or in Greek, I'm sorry, D-A-U-I-D. Now, David may have been declinable if it were written Davidus with that O-S at the end. But in Biblical Greek, it was never written that way. Now, in November of 2009, while I am preparing this revised presentation of this essay, I have found that the declinable form, Davidus, is used 
as a name by some modern Greek speakers. So that substantiates what I said 14 years ago. But it was not used that way in scripture. Continuing my response to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, secondly, it may be apparent that the final A sound in Yahshua was also dropped for Greek, so that Jesus is really only equivalent to Yashu. The only place in the Septuagint where the sound of that final vowel was retained, at least in the Alexandrian manuscripts, is the Yesua of 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 27. Although some Septuagint versions have it in a couple of other places as well. There we see the following, speaking of the genealogy of the Old Testament Joshua. Num huios atu, which is Nun, his son. Yesua huios atu, which is Joshua, his son. So in that one place we see Yahshua. The occurrences of Yahshua in some manuscripts of scripture do indeed help us to establish that the original Hebrew spelling would be more like our Yahshua than Yesu, a form I will comment on later. A another form I will comment on later. In the Hebrew spelling, which has no true vowels, the A on the end of Yahshua comes from the letter Ayin. In later Masoretic Hebrew, between 600 and 900 AD, vowel points were added. And in the Old Testament, the ayin was accompanied with a vowel point signifying that it is followed by an A sound. While the letter A does not actually exist in the name, perusing the transliterations in Strong's Hebrew Dictionary, along with his English spellings and pronunciations, practically everywhere that this letter appears, a vowel is supplied along with it. The vowel points on the letter shin, or the S or SH sound, indicate that it was accompanied by the letter U. And I compared that to words that actually had a letter U. According to the Wikipedia article for the letter Ion, in writing it is frequently omitted in transliterations and the vowel quality is shifted. But it is evident that the vowels are nevertheless retained even if the consonant itself is not transliterated, is not represented in the language that we are changing the name into. Now, to repeat ourselves once again, thirdly, the missing H must be addressed. In Greek, there is no letter equivalent to the letter H. The symbol H is there, but it represents the uppercase vowel eta. While in Greek, there is a CH, the letter key, and a TH, which is the letter theta, and a PH, which is the letter phi. Some people might mistakenly call them chi and phi. Neither is there an SH letter, only an S. 
If there were a letter for ancient Greek, perhaps the ion may have been retained in transliteration, but there isn't and it wasn't. The Greeks designated an aspirant or H sound before words which began with a vowel by using the symbol which we know as an apostrophe or opening single quotation mark which denotes the presence of the sound, or a reverse apostrophe, or closing single quotation mark, which denotes its absence. But with the exception of the letters which contained key of, of the, I'm sorry, of the words which contained key, theta, and phi, the CH, the TH, and the PH, with those exceptions, there was no way by which the Greeks added such a sound in the middle of a word. Although there is one other exception, which is some occurrences of the R sound, but that is beyond the scope of our discussion here. It's not necessary. Furthermore, there was no way for ancient Greeks to represent an SH sound in writing. They couldn't do it. It's not in language. But this was not a problem for the Hebrew speaker, <clears throat> since, as can be seen in the Hebrew articulation section of the Hebrew dictionary, which accompanies Strong's exhaustive concordance, in Hebrew, the same letter, sin or shin, represents either the S or SH sound. So it would not be a problem at all for a Hebrew reader writing in Greek to see the Hebrew letter sin or shin and for the SH sound to write a Greek sigma or S. Therefore, understanding that Jesus is a natural transliteration into Greek of the Hebrew name which is pronounced as Yahshua is easy once all of these conventions of the two languages are understood. So the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament observes that the evidence of the New Testament is to the same effect as the Septuagint, in Acts chapter 7, verse 45, and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, there is a reference to Jesus, i.e. Joshua, the son of Nun. It asked, in other words, Joshua, the son of Nun. In other words, if those passages mention Jesus, in reference to the Joshua of the Old Testament, then we know that Jesus is how they had chosen to write the Hebrew form of Joshua in Greek. In the King James Version of Acts chapter 7, we read, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. 
And of course, the Jesus referred to in that passage is the Joshua of the Old Testament, who led the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. Then, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, there was another reference to Joshua, and it says, For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? So it is clearly evident that Jesus is somehow a form of the Hebrew name which is transliterated as Joshua in the Old Testament. Once we realize that the J was originally a Y sound, even in English, we see that the true name is Joshua. But this leads me to another digression. There are protests to our use of the name Yahshua, that the apostles did not write in Hebrew, but in Greek, and therefore in English only transliterations based on the Greek form of the name Jesus are acceptable to Christians, because Christ was called Jesus by his apostles. But this argument is also based on a false premise. Simply because the apostles wrote in Greek does not mean that as Christ was with them, that they had addressed him by his name in Greek. <clears throat> Although it is certain that all of the books of the New Testament were originally written in Greek, many statements in the Gospels and the Book of Acts indicate that the apostles had often spoken in Hebrew which was their primary language. Hebrew was their primary language, and that can be demonstrated. And they spoke it regardless of whether any of them may have been able to speak Greek to one extent or another. As another digression, today academics think they spoke Aramaic. But the apostles themselves called what they had spoke Hebrew. And since they spoke it, they should know better. They never called it Aramaic. Not all Judeans could even speak Greek. And it seems that typically they did not speak Greek. In Acts chapter 21, we read of a Roman centurion's surprise that Paul of Tarsus could speak Greek. This is found in verse 37, where Paul is being led off into the Roman fort. And Luke wrote, And as Paul was to be led into the castle, because he was being arrested, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, in other words, the chief captain answered him, Can thou speak Greek? So it is very plausible that the apostles did address Christ by the Hebrew form of his name, which is Yahshua, since they spoke to him in Hebrew. But much later, while writing the Gospels and other accounts and letters found in the New Testament, they used the Greek form of the name only because they were writing in Greek.
the apostles certainly didn't say, didn't foresee the modern disputes over this name. Now, hopefully having established that Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew form of the name Yahshua, and sufficiently explaining how that may be so, attention may be turned to the Greek, Latin, and English. The Greek Ada is a difficult vowel, and the Ada is actually represented by what looks like an English capital letter H in the uppercase, and by what looks like an English small letter N, as in Nancy, in the lowercase. The eta is a difficult vowel, since it has no direct equivalent in Latin or English. Although the majority of scholars usually represent it in transliterations of names with an E, there are many who more often represent it with an A. Examples of the eta changing among the languages are evident in Strong's exhaustive concordance, where the Hebrew word for Mede, the people of the Medes, is transliterated by Strong as Madday, M-A-D-A-Y, and the Greek word, no different in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 verse 9, that in all classical Greek is Medus, M-A-D-O-S, which Strong's transliterates as M-E-D-O-S and pronounces as M-A-Y-D-O-S. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, the word at Strong's Hebrew 4074 was translated in the King James Version as Madai, M-A-D-A-I. So we need not look far to see that the A and the E are both interchangeable with the Greek letter eta, the Greek vowel eta. The letter I at the beginning of a word the letter I or iota, as it is called in Greek. The letter I, in the beginning of a word, when followed by a vowel, James Strong represents with a double E in all of his pronunciations in his Greek lexicon. This is correct, although for practical purposes, the I becomes equivalent to the spoken English letter Y in these instances. And this is true for Latin as well. Neither Greek nor Latin having a letter Y as we know it. For example, the English word Y-E-A-R is pronounced nearly identically to the sequence E-E-E-A-R. And if you don't believe me, try that yourself. Try to say E-E-E-A-R without it sounding like year, Y-E-A-R. It's always going to sound like Y-E-A-R. 
In Greek, the symbol Y, our capital Y, represented the uppercase Upsilon, the lowercase U, and the equivalent of our own U, although it is often transliterated with a Y, examples being the prefixes hyper and hypo. In the New College Latin and English Dictionary by John C. Troutman, it is explained that in Latin, the letter Y was adopted from the Greek into the Roman alphabet for the transliteration of words containing an upsilon, a U, for which U was used earlier, I guess in Old Latin, and pronounced approximate as a German U for like the German U in Uber, the U with umlauts over it. But its use was restricted to foreign words. So while the Hebrew had a Y, the Yod, neither Latin nor Greek had an exact equivalent, both using an I in words where today in English we use a J, such as in Jerusalem, Joppa, or Jacob. Latin and Greek all spell those words beginning with an I. And all of that may be discerned from Strong's Concordance or from any Greek text, even of the New Testament. When Roman Latin speakers encountered the Greek Jesus, which would have been pronounced Jesus, or as Strong's has it, E-A-S-O-S, double E-A-Y-S-O-O-S, Jesus. They wrote Jesus, Jesus, I-E-S-U-S. As we have seen, the E is a fair representation of the Greek eta. Checking Strong's Greek lexicon and the Greek articulation section at its beginning, the O-U diphthong in Greek is pronounced just as the O-U in the English word through. In the pronunciation section of the New College Latin and English Dictionary on page 4, there is no OU diphthong in Latin. Yet the Latin U by itself is able to represent the same sound, the U as in rude, as the Greek OU diphthong. And so the Latin Jesus is a fair representation of the Greek Jesus. Again, checking the New College Latin and English Dictionary, the I in Latin would be treated no differently as it would be in Greek, I double E as a double E in keen, Jesus, as Strong represents it as E-E double E, where it begins a word and is followed by another vowel. Here it must be pointed out that the pronunciation guide in the New College Latin and English Dictionary is split into two sections, the classical method and 
the ecclesiastical method, which is basically church Latin, which became extant among the clergy in the medieval period. At the letter S under classical method, it states, always S in sing. But under ecclesiastical method, it states, S in sing. But when standing between two vowels, or when final, meaning at the end of a word, and preceded by a voiced consonant, it was pronounced like the Z in dozen. So we see that in the Latin of the later church, Jesus began to be pronounced Jesus. Yet bear in mind that this change affected a large number of Latin words, and not just this one name. This leaves us with the English letter J. According to the table entitled Development of the Alphabet, on page 34 in the opening and introductory pages of the American Heritage College Dictionary, 3rd edition, the J appeared in the minuscule script, which was prevalent from 300 to 700 AD, and the Carolingian script from circa 800 AD, along with later scripts. But of our language, the American Heritage College Dictionary states that the English alphabet reached its total of 26 letters only after medieval scribes added W, W, originally written as to use, U-U, and Renaissance printers, that would be 15th, 16th century printers, they say 14th, but that's okay, and Renaissance printers separated the variant pairs I, J, and U, V. And so we see that in English, J became a distinct letter only during the Renaissance, which began in the 14th century, and that the letter J was only a variant of the letter I. However, just because in some European scripts, the minuscule, the Carolingian, we have a J at an early time, that does not mean that the letter was pronounced as we pronounce it today, as we do the soft G, for instance, in gentle or germane, which seems to have come from the French. And in the French, it is represented by a ZH in pronunciations of French words, which appear in the American Heritage College Dictionary. Although I have by no means fully researched the matter, I don't know how the J became a ZH in French, except that they might use too much perfume and drink too much wine. The Spanish pronounce the J as an English H, 
In the pronunciation guide to the New College Latin and English Dictionary on page 5, we find that the J of medieval and ecclesiastical Latin, because the American Heritage College Dictionary attests that classical Rome did not even know the letter, we find that the J was pronounced like the Y in yes. Even closer to our own language is German, which pronounces the J as a Y. And so Jesus in German would sound much the same as it did in Latin or in Greek, Jesus. Checking the American Heritage College Dictionary for the pronunciation of the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung's last name, we find Jung, Y-O-O-N-G, and the Swiss city Jungfrau is Jungfrau, a junker, a member of the old Prussian aristocracy is a Junker. In all three cases, the double O is said to be pronounced as the double O in our word took. In the American Heritage College Dictionary, the name of the seabird called a Jager, named from the German word for hunter, is pronounced Jager. It is common knowledge that the popular German name Johann, our John, is pronounced Johann. The Greek spelling is Johannes. While it is beyond the purpose of this document, it must suffice to say that in spite of the insistences of both Jews and Arabs to the contrary, the Gospels were originally written in Greek. While a form of Hebrew, which some academics insist was Aramaic, was spoken in first century Palestine, Greek was also a common language there, as the historical and archaeological records also attest. The internal evidence, both textually and contextually, leaves no doubt in the mind of the Greek reader that such was the language they were written in. And so it should be evident that some form of Jesus was the name which Joshua Christ was called by and responded to during his walk upon this earth. Originally, I had written this to address the people who would connect the name Jesus to Zeus. While it is still true, today I am more persuaded that the form of Jesus by which Christ was more frequently addressed is the Hebrew form, Yahshua, although that cannot, that cannot be proven conclusively. I am persuaded that in writing, the apostles always used the Greek form as they were writing in Greek, but that while they knew him in this, wor in this world, it is more plausible that they addressed him by the native Hebrew form, which was their first language. In any event, here it should be manifest that Jesus, or the Latin Jesus, evolved naturally from the Greek form Jesus, having suffered several incremental alterations with changes in language and dialect.
And so Jesus is not a name produced by some conspiracy, although it should be kept in mind that Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus were all originally pronounced Jesus, or at least in some way quite similar. Stripping away the final S, added for the benefit of Greek and later Latin grammar, all of these versions may be represented by the simple Yesu, a form known to identity scholars in the 19th century, evidenced in the work of E.O. Gordon and others. As we have seen, Yesu is only a Hellenized form of the Hebrew Yahshua without the final A. Although I first read it very early in my studies, I would like to one day read it again where I can now be more critical. In chapter one of his book, Prehistoric London, Gordon wrote of Druidism, and he said, the universe is infinite. Gordon was also a little bit of a humanist. The universe is infinite, being the body of the being who out of himself evolved or created it, and now pervades and rules it, as the mind of a man does his body. The essence of this being is pure, mental, light, and therefore he is called dew, the one without darkness. Of course, he is relating this to the ancient Welsh language. His real name is an ineffable mystery in the mind of the Welsh. And so also is his nature. To the human mind, though not in himself, he necessarily represents a triple aspect in relation to the past, present, and future. The creator as to the past, the savior or conserver as to the present, the renovator or recreator as to the future. In the recreator, the idea of the destroyer was also involved. This was the Druidic Trinity, the three aspects of which were known as Beli, Taran, and Isu, or Yesu. When Christianity preached Jesus as God, it preached the most familiar name of its own deity to Druidism, and in the ancient British tongue, Jesus, or Savior, has never assumed its Greek, Latin, or Hebrew form, but remains the pure Druidic Yesu. So this is what I had recalled when I wrote that last paragraph of my original paper in 2015. But I can also remember seeing the term in other British Israel literature. While I would now say that we cannot know very much concerning Druidism, it is evident that at least many of the British people accepted Christianity as early as the first century, long before the Romans, and that in some places, vestiges of the early Celtic church remained independent of Rome until the 13th century when even then they were forced into the Roman church by an English king. The name Jesus appears both in the New Testament 
and in the works of Flavius Josephus as a personal name for many men other than Christ. And therefore, it must have been a given name which was somewhat popular around that time. But the Jews seem to have always despised the original form and corrupted it. It is evident in many places that the modern Jews, who never were true Hebrews or Israelites, preferred the spelling Yeshua. And in recent times, it is a common name among them. Although the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament states that with the 2nd century A.D., Jesus disappears as a proper name, it seems to have been revived since the founding of the artificial Zenith state in Palestine. I feel quite safe in stating that even in Christian identity circles, a writer who uses the form Yeshua has been heavily influenced by Jewish literature, and his work should be viewed in that context, for it may well be suspect. Non-Judaized Israel identity writers generally use the form Yahshua. The word Yeshua in Hebrew is spelled one Hebrew letter short of Yahshua, and it can mean he saves. But that can indicate any man who saves, when in truth it is only Yahweh God who can save man. Using that form, as we shall see, actually turns a prophecy about the Hebrew form of the name Joshua into a lie, which is found in Exodus chapter 23. It is another Jewish rabbit hole by which they avoid the name of Yahweh with a more secular replacement. There is another myth among identity Christians that Yeshua really means, may his name and memory be blotted out. But that is not true. Rather, there is an anagram that Talmudic rabbis had allegedly made and which is said to be found in the Talmud, and the anagram is made from the Hebrew letters of the shortened form of the name Yeshua. However, the name Yeshua does not bear that meaning by itself. So get a life and get off all of the childish bullshit. We don't need it in CI. The name Yeshua is not a curse by itself. It simply means he saves rather than Yahweh saves, which is what Yahshua means. While I cannot disparage forms such as Jesus or Yesu, knowing how those forms came to be, yet in my own writings, I use the form Yahshua, and I believe that I have very good reasons for doing so. First, in English, there are not the limitations in pronunciation or spelling which the Greek language had imposed, which made the form Jesus necessary in the first place. Secondly, the form Yahshua 
represents a meaning which is absent in Jesus. Its component parts being derived from the words Yahweh, that name which the Jews both despise and avoid, cursing all who do mention it, and a form of a word meaning salvation or to be saved. So, Yahshua conveys a meaning which is not evident in other forms. Yahweh Savior or Yahweh Saves, a statement which is completely dis descriptive of the very purpose of Yahshua Christ in the first place and also of his very essence. Clifton had often pointed out an important prophecy in this regard, which in the immediate sense refers to Joshua the son of Nun, but which in the prophetic sense is indeed a reference to Joshua Christ. This is found in Exodus chapter 23. Behold, I send an angel before thee, to keep thee in the way, and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. For my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice, and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies, and an adversary unto thine adversaries. So where Yahweh had said of Joshua, the son of Nun, that my name is in him, and Yahshua Christ had that same name in its Hebrew form, we know that the name of Yahweh is also in his name and that he should be called Yahshua. The prophecy may also be interpreted to refer to Christ, and Yahweh's name is in him, so it must be Yahshua. For the same reason we read in Matthew chapter 1, where the angel speaks to Joseph, instructing him to accept the pregnant Mary, and says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, or Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Many take this to refer to the form of the name, which means he saves. However, in Isaiah chapter 45, we read, Tell ye, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh, and there is no God else besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Yahweh saves and there is no other. So in Isaiah chapter 49, we read, All flesh shall know that I, Yahweh, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Being the Word made flesh, being Yahweh God incarnate, Yahshua Christ certainly fits the description 
of the statement made by his name, which is Yahweh saves. Any other form of the word loses the significance of its true meaning. This ends my presentation from Yahshua to Jesus, Evolution of a Name. But I'm not quite finished this evening. I said it would be a long program, and that would be one of my shorter ones. Now I am going to offer an addendum to my last presentation, to which is it Lord or Yahweh, which is Clifton Emmeheiser's short essay titled, Just Because the Term Yah Was Found at Ebla and Ugarit is no sign that Yahweh is Canaanite in origin. It is fitting to do this here because it answers some of the questions of those who had scoffed at his first paper. Clifton evidently published this later essay in May of 2007, ostensibly in response to certain identity Christians who were following Pete Peters, who was insisting that Christians use the name Jesus exclusively in reference to Christ. So he begins, the Jesus-only people are busy in an attempt to prop up their faulty premise that their names Yahweh and Yahshua have a Canaanite origin. The first problem here is that certain people believe Jewish encyclopedias, which I'll discuss shortly. Check any good dictionary or encyclopedia, and one will find that the letter J never existed in any language before the Middle Ages. Clifton's point being that, therefore, the name of Christ can't be Jesus. It must be something else. It was the medieval scribes that began the usage in the 1600s, at least in English. While J is the tenth letter of the English alphabet, it was the last, or 24th, to be added by the scribes. Therefore, if Jesus is the correct name, the English J must be dropped or pronounced Essus. Neither Paul nor any of Christ's disciples ever used the term Jesus with an English J. And because there is no equivalent in the Greek for the English letter J, no early New Testament writer ever wrote the name Jesus. That brings up another question. Because the Greek alphabet has both a long and a short E, Epsilon and Eta, which of these two E's do we use? Because the original New Testament Greek for Jesus has an Eta, not an Epsilon. Surely these experts on the name Jesus should be able to explain this. So that leaves us with only the letters Sus, S-U-S, to enunciate his name. And what kind of name is that? It sounds a little like a hissing snake. Clifton is being sarcastic, but it demonstrates that any insistence on an adherence to a particular transliteration of a word is simply wrong when there are two or more plausible transliterations. 
but a transliteration based on letters which had only come into existence since the original word was used, representing sounds that never existed in that original language, is certainly wrong, since it cannot represent the sound of the original word. So he continues. It is coming through the grapevine. I know where this came from to Clifton, but I won't say their name tonight. It's some of our friends in Ohio. It is coming through the grapevine that these Jesus-only people are going to try to prove that the name Yahweh can be found in Ugaritic texts. Ugarit, or Ugarit, U-G-A-R-I-T, was an ancient city, and I believe it was a Phoenician city and not a Canaanite city, and texts dating to the 13th century BC have been discovered. Modern scholars attribute them to Canaanites, but that's bullshit. They should be attributed to Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians at that time were Israelites. But that's a separate topic, which perhaps I will address at a completely different time, even though it might come up again here. But that's Ugarit, and the Ugaritic texts are the clay tablets discovered at ancient Ugarit. It is coming through the grapevine that these Jesus-only people are trying to prove that the name Yahweh can be found in Ugaritic texts, and it somehow makes the Tetragrammaton to be of Canaanite origin. These Jesus-only people simply detest the names Yahweh and Yahshua. Even the King James translators became confused with the name Yahshua at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. If you have an older King James Version, you will find that it reads, For if Jesus, and I know we've already discussed this, but that's okay, It'll get drilled into our heads. For if Jesus had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. The reason that the King James Version translators became confused was because both Christ, the Anointed One, and Joshua of the sixth book of the Old Testament have the same name. If you have a Revised Standard Version and check this verse, it reads, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later about another day. Well, which is it, Jesus or Joshua? Again, let all of the Jesus-only people explain this one also. The King James Version translators also made the same mistake at Acts 7.45. The King James Version reads, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. The RSV reads, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God thrust out before our ancestors. So it was there until the days of David. Again I ask, which is it, Jesus or Joshua? 
I could quote from many commentaries that understand that both Christ and Joshua had the same name. And once we understand, there was no English J in either Hebrew or Greek. Joshua can only be properly pronounced with a Y sound. Yashua. Therefore, any man that gets up before his audience and denounces the name of Yashua and then turns around and quotes from the book of Joshua is a blathering idiot. I know that Pete Peters did this often. However, I do not know if Clifton had anyone else in mind. A few years ago, Clifton had me publish an article he wrote criticizing one of Peter's Dragon Slayer newsletters, which contained an article condemning the use of the Hebrew name of God and disparaging anyone who used it. Peters wrote that article in 2009, and by 2011, he was dead after a riding accident at the relatively young age of 63. Continuing with Clifton, for anyone who pretends to understand the Ugaritic texts needs to get a three-volume Ebladica, Essays on the Ebla Archives and Eblai Language, edited by Cyrus H. Gordon and Gary A. Rensberg. Let me say something about Cyrus Gordon. He was a Jew, but he was also sort of a maverick. He was a maverick archaeologist. And he understood a lot of good things that identity Christians also understand. Cyrus Gordon understood the links between the um, linear A, linear B, the alphabets and, and tablets found in Cyprus and among the Minoans and other settlements of Crete and other settlements in the Mediterranean and their connections between the Hebrew language and the Greek language. Cyrus Gordon also understood that the tribe of Dan was connected to both Hebrews and Greeks. And he had a lot of other boneheaded Jewish ideas, but he was in a lot of ways a maverick that was ready to admit all of the connections between the Greek and the ancient Hebrew civilizations. And for that reason, he was something, at least sometimes, something of an outcast amongst the Jews. So Cyrus Gordon is a, um, an interesting individual, even though he was a Jew. He made a lot of candid admissions, which even surprised me at times. So, Clifton's recommending the, the this three-volume set of Bladica, Essays on the Ebla Archives and Eblaite Language. I haven't sought it yet among his library, but I might do so this weekend. It might be interesting. The archaeological finds of Ebla predate Abraham by several hundreds of years. It was like finding some lost historic data from Noah to Abraham. 
as of this date, no older texts relating to Scripture have been found. In Volume 2, there is a chapter titled Ebla and the Gods of Canaan, written by Robert R. Stieglitz. And the name Yahweh is not mentioned once as one of them, nor is it even hinted at. My hope is, with this thesis, I can head Pete Peters off at the pass. Peters liked to play cowboy, so that was an interesting line from Clifton. On page 79, Stieglitz says, Ebla is thus situated midway between the Mediterranean Sea and the Euphrates River, in a region which was, the long, which was long the meeting ground of diverse peoples, Canaanites, Amorites, Hurrians, Akkadians, and Sumerians. Clifton says, of course, the Sumerians were Aryans, as attested by Waddell in his Makers of Civilization and Egyptian Civilization, with too many references for all of them to be mentioned here. In his Makers of Civilization on page 86 is a subtitle, The Advent of the Sumerians into Mesopotamia and its date around or about 3,335 B.C. So Clifton says, surely the Sumerians were Shemites and would have been familiar with the divine name. I must interject that the year 3335 B.C. is roughly around the time of Noah's flood, according to chronologies based on the Septuagint, which are much more accurate than the Jewish Masoretic text. But I do not agree that these Sumerians were Shemites. In fact, there is strong evidence of a previous quote-unquote, fallen angel civilization there. But then, in Genesis chapter 10, we read of Nimrod, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. The giant, <coughs> the giant Gilgamesh once ruled over Erech. Babel and Shinar were in land known as Sumer, and Nimrod came out of Ham, although Akkad was later the land of the Shemitic Assyrians. So it's not cut and dry. It's actually kind of mixed up. Already by that time, it's, it's mixed up. That seems nuts because it's awfully early, but yeah, it's mixed up by that time. <clears throat> Imagine the world that Yahweh had pulled Abraham out of and sent him right into the midst of another mixed-up land, which was the land of Canaan. As for the Canaanites, Clifton continues, Amorites and Hurrians, it would somewhat parallel Genesis chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. I wrote about the Ebla find in my Watchman's Teaching Letter number 30, thusly, and Clifton's quoting himself. The Ebla find. As I promised you last month, I will bring you information on an archaeological find at a place known as Ebla. I remember reading this all the way back in maybe 2000 and... Wow... 
2000, probably 2000, 2001, and being quite fascinated by these archaeological discoveries at Ebla because I hadn't heard, heard of them before this. As I promised you last month, I will bring you information on an archaeological find at a place known as Ebla. I will now quote from the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. The archaeological supplement, in part, pages 1791 to 1793. A few years after this, a friend of mine in Ireland, I was in prison, named Martin Key, sent me a copy of the Thompson Chain Reference Bible, which I appreciated very much because I read that entire archaeological supplement. As this archaeological supplement is being continually updated by Thompson, your edition may read differently than what I am quoting here. So it might be on different pages or whatever. The most impressive of these mounds, discovered at Ebla, is known as Tel Mardik, which lies some 30 miles south of modern Aleppo, rises 50 feet above the plain, and covers an area of 140 acres. In the spring of 1964, Dr. Paolo Mathahi, Mathie, 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 decayed cities underneath them, covered by the dust of centuries. He obtained a permit to excavate Telmardic with his wife, Gabriella, and an efficient archaeological team of assistants. Most of those are recruited from universities. During the first few years, they carried out soundings in various parts of the mound, Uncovered were city gates similar to those of Solomon at Gezer and Megiddo, and two small chapel-type temples, like the famous temples of Shechem, Megiddo, and Hazor, all dating between 2,000 and 1,600 years before Christ, the period called Middle Bronze I and II. That would be about the same period between the time of Abraham almost to the exodus of the Israelites from, from Egypt. Halfway, anyway. In 1968, the archaeologists discovered a royal statue which bore a dedicatory inscription to one Ibit Lim, lord of the city of Ebla, to the goddess Ishtar. It soon became clear that they were excavating the remarkable metropolis of the kingdom of Ebla, an immense Semitic empire whose center was set on the plains of modern Syria, the plains of Aram, that's Padanaram in scripture. From occasional references to it in the ancient inscriptions, from Ur, Lagash, Nippur, Mary, and Egypt, archaeologists had long suspected the prevence the presence of such a civilization in North Syria. Many places and events of history would now fall into proper place. 
1973, work was begun in early Bronze Age Ebla, which dated between 2400 and 2225 BC. Excavators found a tablet indicating the city at this period was divided into two sections, an Acropolis, or high city, and a lower city. The Acropolis, and this was common, a common layout in ancient cities. The Acropolis contained four building complexes, the Palace of the City, the Palace of the King, the Palace of the Servants, and the Stables. The lower city was divided into four quarters, each of which had a gate. The Gate of the City, the Gate of Dagan, the Gate of, the gate of Rasap, and the Gate of Sippis, probably all gods, all idols. In 1975, while excavating in the Palace of the City, the chief administrative center, they came upon the ruins of a large three-story three royal palace building, which had flourished four generations before the birth of Abraham. It contained a spacious audience court, 100 to 170 feet, with a portico of carved wooden and stone columns adorned with gold and lapis lazuli, which was a sort of blue stone a tower room, and smaller rooms at the entrance of the courtyard. In the tower room were 42 cuneiform business tablets and a small school exercise tablet. During the following year, they worked in the two rooms at the entrance of the courtyard. In the first room were about 1,000 business and administrative tablets, which were found rather spread out and disordered. The second room was a large library, the authentic royal archives, containing 15,000 tablets that had been regularly arranged on wooden shelves. When the palace was destroyed by fire, however, the flames devoured the wooden shelves and the tablets settled on top of one another. In a nearby room were another 1,000 tablets, along with writing implements, this they took to be the scribe's room. In yet another room were 800 tablets, along with beautifully wooden, beautifully carved wooden figures, seal impressions, and plaques of wood, gold, and lapis lazuli. One sheet of gold was found. Professor Petinato, I don't really like this guy. You'll find out why found that the major portion of the tablets were written in Sumerian wedge-shaped cuneiform script, the world's oldest written language. The tablets themselves, however, dated from the middle of the third millennium BC, that would be at least 500 years before Abraham. One large tablet was a dictionary giving the Sumerian equivalents of some 3,000 Ebraic words. With the help of this lexicon, Petinato was able to decipher many of the other Ebraic tablets. About 20% of the tablets were written in a northwestern Semitic language, which Petinato called Paleo-Canaanite, or Old Canaanite, and that's why I don't like him. 
Although the script was also used, the script used was also cuneiform Sumerian. He's calling the language Paleo-Canaanite, although it was written in a cuneiform script. This, he says, was the language spoken in Ebla and is closer in vocabulary and grammar to biblical Hebrew than any other Canaanite dialect, including Ugaritic. So he should have never, he should have never called it Proto-Canaanite, and evidently he knew better, which is just crazy. So we could kind of do without the guy. I'm, I'm being a little smartass, but I, I, I am repulsed by the confusion of Canaanite and Hebrew. Petanano's label is unfortunate. First, Ugaritic is not necessarily Canaanite and is more likely Phoenician. Second, Ebla, the language of Ebla or Ebleite, is certainly an early form of Hebrew and not Proto-Canaanite. Secondly, there were Hebrews other than Israelites and other related peoples who must have spoken similar languages to Hebrew or Aramaic who were also not Canaanites. Ebla also lies in the area of Padanaram. Padanaram means the plain of Aram, which was the home of the kindred of Abraham. Continuing with Clifton's citation. Contents and significance of the tablets. The tablets so far unearthed numbered nearly 20,000, the majority of them large. Those which have been translated, only a fraction of the total, tell of the economy, administration, education, religion, trade, and conquest of a great commercial empire of which all memory had been lost in the historical traditions of the Near East. Because, of course, once an empire crumples, it's not long before it's no longer mentioned in those historical traditions, in historiography, because it's gone. What they have found already throws a flood of light on so many aspects of research in the field of ancient history and biblical archaeology that in many quarters the Ebla tablets are now considered more significant for elucidating ancient history and the early backgrounds of the Bible than any other archaeological discovery ever unearthed. With its empire, the city of Ebla, whose population is given in one tablet as 260,000, constituted one of the greatest powers in the ancient Near East during the 3rd millennium BC. Its commercial and political influence extended far beyond its own borders. From Sinai in the southwest to Mesopotamia in the east. As major trade as a major trade center, it controlled east-west commercial routes for grain and livestock. From the west, cedar timber from Lebanon and metals and textiles from Anatolia. 
the home of the Hittites, along with trade in silver and gold and the several other commodities from Cyprus and other Mediterranean countries. Ebla was a flourishing Semitic civilization. Her arts prospered and her craftsmen were renowned for the quality of their metalwork, textiles, ceramics, and woodworkings. They made cloth of scarlet and gold, weapons of bronze, and furniture of wood. Their educational system was far advanced. They kept records in their own language on tablets of clay, which they stored in archives deep in the cellars, the basements, of the royal palace. All this existed more than a thousand years before the brilliant civilization of David and Solomon. Ebla had a king and queen. Like Israel, it anointed its kings and had prophets. The king was in charge of state affairs, and his queen was held in equally high regard. The crown prince helped with domestic and administrative affairs, while the second son aided his father in foreign affairs. The tablets are quite explicit about the structure of the state and about the royal dynasty. Six kings are listed, among which is Ebram, the resemblance of his name to Eber, the father of the Shemites, according to Genesis 10.21, is astonishing, since it is virtually the same name as the biblical Eber, a direct descendant of Noah and the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Abraham. And, of course, Eber is father of only a portion of the Shemites. It amazes me how frequently even academics misread these things. But Shem is the father of the Shemites. I mean, come on, let's get real. And the Shemites are broken up into a lot of branches after that. And Eber was only a small portion of one of those initial branches. Other names found in these texts and later used by biblical characters are Abraham, Esau, Saul, Michael, David, Israel, and Ishmael. The gods worshipped at Ebla numbered around 500 and included El and Yah. El is a shortened form of Elohim. Actually, that's not true. Elohim is a lengthened form of El because that I am is a Hebrew plural. Used later by the Hebrews and in the Ugaritic tablets, the word Elohim. Yah is a shortened form of what some think might be Yahweh or Jehovah and was used for the supreme God and gods in general. Other principal gods were Dagan, Rasap or Resef, <clears throat> Sippis or Samis, Astar, that would be Ishtar, Adad, Camus, and Milik or Melek, the Hebrew word for king. I'm making some additional notes here. This does not disturb me that a supreme god named Yah is mentioned in the inscriptions of Ebla, an apparently Shemitic city. So, in my presentation of which is it, Lord or Yahweh, given here just last weekend, 
I said the following. <clears throat> it is apparent that Abraham was raised in a pagan environment. We see that Ebla had 500 gods. As the scriptures also inform us that his fathers were pagans, where we read in Joshua chapter 24. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith Yahweh God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood, meaning the other side of the river Euphrates, in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods, apparently about 499 of them. <laughs> then in Exodus chapter 3, we read, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. I would translate that, I am what I will be. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Yahweh God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you, and this is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. And in Exodus chapter 6, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, God Almighty, or Elohim Almighty. El Shaddai, I believe that is. But my name, Yahweh, but by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. That's El Shaddai, God Almighty. I just double-checked that because I was winging it when I said that. All of this shows that the name Yahweh was not known to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. But it does not mean that the name was unknown in even more ancient times. I would assert that because the name was apparently derived from a dialect more ancient than Hebrew, but from which Hebrew had developed, that alone is an indication to us that it was known at one time to the ancients. Forms of it appear in inscriptions from Ebla that predate the time of Moses. And it also appears in inscriptions found at Ugarit. While I am not convinced and even reject the notion that the Ugarit texts predate Moses, even if they do, it would only indicate that the name was known in more ancient times, as the texts from Ebla may also indicate. None of this disturbs a faith in Scripture, as men much more ancient than Moses must have possessed the truth of that same God who had made covenants with Noah and Adam. But as the Scripture attests from the time of Moses, Yahweh revealed himself only to the children of Israel. Once again, continuing with Clifton's citation, his citation of himself, in recording the trade and treaty dealings of Ebla, the tablets give the names of hundreds of individual place names, 
among which are Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, Geza, Lachish, Joppa, Ashtaroth, Dor, and Megiddo, as well as cities east of the Jordan. One tablet mentions the cities of the plain in the same order as in Genesis chapter 14, verse 2, which are Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, or Zoar, as being cities with which Ebla carried on extensive trade. This was the first time these place names had been found outside the Bible. Dr. David Noel Friedman, another Jew, had pointed out that this record precedes the great catastrophe involving Lot, which many modern scholars have regarded as entirely fictional. And those so-called scholars are just idiots. This was a very important discovery, which proves the story of Lot and the destruction of Sodom, Gomorrah, and those other cities. Clifton's citation continues, but me, we must bear in mind that where the writer says Canaanite, the label is not true. The texts contain Canaanite stories. They're really early Shemitic stories of the creation and the flood and the Canaanite code of law, or an early Shemitic code of law. The creation tablet, a beautifully inscribed ten-line poem, is closer to the Genesis account than anything else discovered. In essence, a part of it reads, There was a time when there was no heaven, and Lugal, meaning the Great One, formed it out of nothing. There was no earth, and Lugal made it. There was no light, and he made it. The flood story is given in five columns on a small tablet. Ebla is only partially excavated, yet a part of the royal palace, two temples, a fortress, three city gates, and tablets, which now number nearly 20,000, have been exposed. This was in the 1970s, mind you. At one time, Ebla even ruled over and collected tribute from Mari, another prominent ancient city, which was gone by the time of Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon. Reverses came, however, and ancient Ebla was destroyed. Apparently, the destruction was incomplete, for Ebla enjoyed something of a second life during the early part of the second millennium BC, the time of Isaac and Jacob. Around 1800 BC, Ebla became a vassal state of the great kingdom of Aleppo, spoken of in the Mary letters as Yamad. Around 1600 BC, <clears throat> Naram Sin, king of Akkad, defeated Ebla in battle and destroyed the city. <clears throat> From this disaster, the city of Ebla never recovered, and it remained buried under its own debris until modern excavators began to resurrect it. Now that ends Clifton's portion of his brief paper, where he did not say much in response, but instead he added an addendum, which I probably wrote for him after I proofread the first part. So here it is, addendum by William Fink. 
Edla and Ugarit were two different places. Ugarit was on the coast of northern Syria at the site of the modern Ras Shamra. Edla was closer to the modern Halab, ancient Aleppo, 100 miles northeast of Ugarit. Another 100 miles northeast of Aleppo is Haran, which I shall discuss below. It should be pointed out that the finds at Ebla are much older than the finds at Ugarit, and examining them helps us to, find, to place the finds at Ugarit in a more proper historical context. It should also be pointed out, as I have said in my Phoenicians essay, identifying the Phoenicians, that the Canaanites are not Shemites, as the archaeologists so often erroneously suppose, and that early forms of the Hebrew language are not proto-Canaanite. Therefore, it should be further pointed out that just because the early inhabitants of Ebla and Ugarit kept their records in and apparently spoke an early form of Hebrew that does not make them Canaanite. The lands where Haran and Ebla, and perhaps even Ugarit, were located are the ancient Padan Aram. I'm not sure if Ugarit should have been included in the area of Padan Aram or not, because it was on the coast and far to the southwest. But Haran and Ebla certainly were within the bounds of the ancient Padanaram, the home of Abraham's kin and of Jacob's father-in-law, Laban the Syrian. The people who occupied these lands were clearly not Canaanites, at least at this early time. Rather, they were Abraham's kin, Hebrews and Arameans, or Syrians. And these were the ancient lands of Arphaxad and Aram who were brothers, that Yah was the chief god of the pantheon of Ebla indeed shows that the people there may have once had the truth, but fell into a state of idolatry and were subsequently judged, the same pattern seen in the empires of more recent history. Just because Abraham himself had not known our god by the name Yahweh, does not mean that his ancestors didn't know the name. Rather, it is apparent from the Ebla finds, as well as other sources, that at one time they did know it. So it is evident that 12 years ago, when I wrote this, I had the same opinion in this regard that I expressed a little more fully last week while discussing this topic, which I have already also repeated here. Continuing with my remarks, the ones I wrote in 2007, the Thompson article cited above shows that names such as Abraham, Esau, Saul, etc. were used in Ebla in the 3rd millennium BC, a thousand years before Moses. Why wouldn't the children of Israel continue to use names which their ancestors used prior to Abraham, which their ancestors prior to Abraham had used? 
The Daniel mentioned by the prophet Ezekiel is not necessarily his contemporary, Daniel the prophet. For instance, another Daniel who lived much earlier was mentioned in the tale of Akat, A-Q-H-A-T, a story dating to before 1300 BC, which was found at Ugarit, citing ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, pages 149 to 155. You could find that somewhere at Christogenia in a PDF. The name of the god El, and personal names which end in the letters Yah and begin in Yah, a god named Yah-Bamat Linim, probably a compound of Yahweh. Baal, Anath, Anath is the Greek Athena, all appear in the Ugaritic texts reproduced in ancient Near Eastern texts. El is called the creator of creatures, and there are many parallels here with the myths and legends of the Greeks, Hebrews, Sumerians, and Akkadians, or Assyrians. Yet the people of Ugarit were not necessarily Canaanites, and even if they were, Canaan also had Noah for an ancestor and would have grown up with and shared those same traditions found in the other branches of the race. The Canaanites were not quarantined. Surely much of their culture would be common with that of various Adamic families. It would be infantile to think differently. Yet Ugarit lies in lands never considered in ancient times to belong to Canaan, which lay far to the south, bordering near Sidon. Ugarit lies in the neighborhood of Aram and its occupants, who spoke a dialect similar to Hebrew, which the descendants of Aram also spoke, certainly needn't have been Canaanites, and in all probability they were not. There is much imagery in the legends of Ugarit, which leads me to believe that they were certainly not Canaanites, and a much more thorough study of their archaic literature is needed by all. One tablet from the Baal legend of Ugarit says at its end, written by Elimelech the Shabnite, dictated by Atani Perulemi, chief of priests, chief of temple herdsmen, donated by Nikmad, king of Ugarit, master of Yargub, lord of Tharumini. Another describes a lady Hariya whose eyeballs are the pureness of lapis, and lapis lazuli was blue, so she had blue eyeballs. In another place, Tyre and Sidon and their idols, Asherah and Elath, are mentioned. Yet, if these tablets are correctly dated to the 13th century BC, Phoenician Israelites may have produced them, Yet these mentions are not an indication of the authors by themselves. Further study of these legends are essential to determine their entire significance. Observing the more accurate chronology of the Septuagint, there are roughly 1,300 years between the time of the flood and the call of Abraham, years which we know very little about. Indeed, the Bible is practically silent concerning these years. 
for which it offers us nothing more than Genesis chapters 9, 10, and 11. 1,300 years of discrepancy between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint would put us today at approximately 7,300 years rather than 6,000 years after Adam. Why don't these Jesus-only people address this time discrepancy issue? I think that last line, that question, belonged to Clifton as it sounds like something he would write. But we were discussing Septuagint chronology at that time. In any event, I do not want to sound obnoxious because Pete Peters did die after breaking his leg in a riding accident. But I still must say that when he disparaged the Hebrew names of our God Yahweh, and Yahshua, his Christ, that he did not have a leg to stand on. And I will leave it at that. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not the God of any Jew, nigger, faggot, sand nigger, or any other beast. Thank you for listening. And good night.